If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We are in week 5 of a series called From the Mountain Peak, looking at Ephesians chapter 1. And last week, we looked at verses 3 and 4, and we really honed in on this one central truth, which is that in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Practically, practically what that means is uh, if we receive that, uh, we will become a people who seek to bless God, who sing his praises. We will become a church that has robust worship that is compelling and um, is very uh, palpable as we, the people of God, bless God. But then secondly, it'll transform our community because if we grasp every spiritual blessing we have in the heavenly places, it'll free and loosen the grips of uh, material blessings in our lives, and we can learn to be generous people, sacrificial uh, with one another. And that will help us look more and more like the early church that we see in the book of Acts, who was practicing this kind of radical generosity. This morning, we find ourselves in verses 5 and 6 of Ephesians 1, and we are considering the wonderful gift of adoption that we have into God's family. And so if you are able, please stand with me for your act of worship uh, in the reading of God's word and the receiving of his holy word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Hear now God's word. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the bluff. The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me once more? God, we ask your blessing upon this hour, this time now, looking at your word. Father, we ask that you would give to us insight by your spirit and illumination, uh, and that through his ministry of taking this word and applying it to our hearts, it would ignite in us uh, fuel and desire to live out our Christian lives um, and for those who uh, do not yet confess Lord uh, Jesus as Lord and Savior, that uh, we would come to know him through an understanding of your word and the many blessings we have through and in him. So bless our time now, Lord. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In college, uh, some of the Christians on the apartment floor that I lived on decided uh, that we would meet and have a Bible study before class uh, once a week. And uh, at this time, I wasn't, there was no plan yet to be a pastor or to go to seminary, uh, but somehow the responsibility to lead the study fell on me. And so we were studying Ephesians, they chose. And I remember that first meeting. Uh, we met at 7 a.m. before classes started. Now, everyone, of course, was still in their PJs and uh, was super tired, but we opened up Ephesians and we began reading chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. And because I was the appointed leader, I shared my thoughts, facilitated discussion, tried to field and answer some questions. Uh, we prayed and then we dismissed. And on the way out, somebody, one of the students came to me and he said, uh, Andrew, let me ask you a question. And I said, sure, what's up? And he said, uh, are you reformed? Now, I had no idea what that question meant. Uh, was I reformed? I mean, I clearly wasn't informed. Uh, didn't know what it meant to be reformed. I was way too proud to ask him, well, what does that mean? Uh, but I did the math really quickly. It's a yes or no question. And so I had a 50-50 chance, 50% chance I was reformed, 50% chance I wasn't reformed. And so I gambled uh, and I said, uh, yes, yes, I am. Uh, and he thought about it for a moment. And without saying anything, he left. As soon as he left, I ran 
Uh, I went to my computer and I Googled uh, Reformed and theology, got to the Wikipedia page, and I began scanning it and I saw words like Presbyterian and John Calvin. I was like, I'm Reformed. Like, okay, this is, okay, I answered correctly. Uh, But what, as it turns out, what happened was, I guess, as I was reading or we were reading and studying Ephesians 1, I was very openly talking about election and predestination. I mean, for me, these words are just here in the text, and I didn't know it at the time, but this is not what everybody believes. Um, and it was kind of embarrassing, but I didn't know there were people who uh, disliked this doctrine of election and predestination, that some people reject it flat out, and they think that it presents God as a cold and heartless and distant. But upon reading Ephesians 1, I, I, it's hard for me to understand that. I mean, considering when you read it in its context, when you extract the doctrine of election, yeah, it may seem cold and abstract and, and distant, but in the context of what Paul is actually telling us, uh, I, it, it's hard uh, to really get that because, you know, I, the caricature of election is often like this. Um, Humanity is on a train and headed toward eternal wrath and destruction, and then election is God just sort of grabs a handful of people, and he puts them on another train that's headed toward life, or, you know, eternal life in heaven. And, and this idea of election and predestination is so uh, just kind of cold, as if God is closing his eyes and, and uh, putting his hand into a bowl full of names, and whoever he pulls out, oh, those are the people who are saved for eternity. And it makes God seem uh, really uh, uninterested, uh, uninvested in his people. But we, what we actually see here in Ephesians 1 is a very different picture. Because what we're seeing in in Ephesians 1 is that God's electing purpose or his predestining purpose was actually done in love. That it's deeply costly and sacrificial for him. Because election is not simply redemptive. Meaning that God's election is not simply uh, setting sinners and slaves free from their spiritual bondage. But election is ultimately relational. What's happening in election is God is making orphans and slaves his sons and daughters. He's bringing people into his family. In fact, then, think about election in this way. God's election is the beginning stages of our adoption process. That God elects us because he wants to adopt us into his family. And so as we look at verses 5 and 6, here's the gospel truth, the one-sentence summary I want us to uh, be thinking about. In love, God desired and determined to make us sons in his son. In love, God desired and determined to make us sons in his son. So let's get started. You know, Paul begins by writing this. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So the question here is, what is adoption? Now, adoption is God's work of bringing sinners into his family by changing our status from slave and orphan to now son. And so if anything, adoption is at least this. It is an objective reality. It is a work that God does, and what he does is definitive and legal, meaning that spiritual orphans are brought into his family, and then he bestows upon them rights and privileges as his children. Now, I mention this because the objective nature of our spiritual adoption means that this change in our status has nothing to do with our subjective experience of it. That those who are made a child of God by his grace are a child of God, even when they fail to live as a child of God. 
that those who are made children of God are his children, even when we call it into question, even when we don't feel like it, and that nothing we can do can undo God's work of adopting us. Simply put, this legal status of adoption precedes our experience of the joys of adoption. Meaning this, you're not adopted because you feel loved by God the Father. You are adopted because you are loved by God the Father. Now, some of you uh, may have grown up as latchkey kids. I did. And what that meant, at least in my household, was that uh, when I woke up, my parents were already out of the house. They were at uh, their store that they owned and operated in Baltimore City. And so I would wake up uh, to an empty home. I would have to get myself ready, dress, go to the uh, bus stop, go to school. And I would come back home to an empty home, prepare my after-school snack by myself, and waited until dinner time when my parents came home. Uh, that experience made me uh, an, uh, an expert at making instant ramen at a young age. Uh, I was really good at mixing white rice and uh, soy sauce and sesame oil. And then when I got to like third grade, I learned how to uh, fry an egg and put that on top. And uh, you know, some of you may have this kind of experience. And if you can imagine it or maybe you can resonate with it, uh, just because your parents weren't around um, growing up doesn't mean that your status as their child was somehow in danger. You know, I personally have very few memories of doing father-son things with my own dad. I mean, he was always busy, always at work. And so, yeah, there were, I have a few memories of going to a Baltimore Orioles game uh, once. I have a few memories of watching him and learning from him how to use power tools. And, and definitely in those moments together, I felt more like his son, but it didn't actually make me more of his son you know, and, and I think the, the other way is also true. You know, some of you can embarrassingly remember those rebellious teenage years, teenage angst, teenage independence. You know, my friends get me, but my family doesn't get me. And, you know, we all have those kinds of uh, experiences. And maybe you lived in a time where you rejected mom, you rejected dad. But even when you pushed your parents away and you wanted nothing to do with them, you were never less their child. So it is with our adoption into God's family. It's a definitive status change, which means even when you feel or you act, and even sometimes you believe you're an orphan or a slave, you can't undo the work God has done, that you can't reverse your identity. Isn't it true that often in our lives when we're walking righteously, blamelessly, we're, we're daily communing with God, we're fighting sin, we're staying far away from it, that we feel closer to God. But in that moment, you're not more his child than you were before. And the same is true the other way. There are times in your life when you've been distant from God, walked rebelliously before him, demanded independence from him, you've sought to be your own master and your own Lord. But in those moments, you're not any less his child. Because when God adopts you into his family, it is a definitive legal status change. You have give, been given a new status, a new identity, and a new name. And so in bringing you into his family then, not only is this objective reality established, but a relationship is created. You see, Paul goes on to write this, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. You see, God did not arrange your adoption into another person's family. God's not like an adoption agent who works behind a desk and places orphans into various people's homes. Rather, God works to bring those united to his son by faith into his own family. 
he works to take spiritual orphans and slaves and bring them into his own home. And this is why adoption is actually the crown jewel of the gospel. We love justification by faith. I love justification by faith. I hope you do too. It's precious to us. The fact that we are declared righteous in Christ, yes and amen, it is foundational and fundamental to our belief. But adoption, adoption is most glorious. Because justification declares us righteous before God, but adoption puts us in a relationship with God. The courtroom now becomes a living room. The cold, heavy bench becomes a nice, plush sofa. Your honor is replaced with Abba Father. In justification, God announces the words that every sinner needs to hear. You are forgiven. But in adoption, God pronounces the words every orphan longs to hear. You are mine. All that God does, he does to adopt you to himself. And in so doing, he creates this relationship with you. God, who is a creator and maker, eternal and infinite, sovereign and sustainer, redeemer and savior, all those titles and, and the list of names that we can call God, he adds one more to it in adoption. And it's the most precious one. He says, you can call me father. So to look upon God and call him father is the greatest and highest privilege bestowed upon all of creation. To look into heaven and to see God and call him father is better than even to look at your sins and say they are forgiven. It's even better to look at your life that's stress-free and say it is blessed. To look into heaven and see God and call him father is better than to look at all the world's riches and say these are mine. To look into heaven and see God and call him father is to climb the mountain of all blessing and to sit on the throne at its apex. It is the crown jewel of the gospel. But how does God adopt us into his family? How does he actually bring us in? How does the, the Lord and the judge of all become our father? And this is made possible because God desired and determined to give up his son in order to gain us as sons. God's fatherly identity is made available to us, but at a cost, a price. You know, in John 3, 16, we read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave us his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, why would God give up his son? Why would God give us his son? And it should humble us to think that God would give us his son in order to gain us as sons. And this is why Apostle Paul writes that our adoption was through Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the eternal son of God, most blessed, perfect son of God. And yet somehow when we are united to that eternal son by faith, we become sons. That our sonship is not because we qualified for it, because we did enough good deeds, that we please God enough, that we were adorable and cute and cuddly and he decided to adopt us. No, what happened is that by faith, we are united to the eternal son of God. In our union with the son, we become sons. Now, therefore God who is, his father becomes your father. 
And if you're united to the Son in a spirit-wrought union, that means the Father will never abandon you. You will never be orphaned. You'll never be forsaken. And you will never be forgotten. You see, when Jesus took on your sins, he took on your guilt, the Father turned his face away. So on the cross, Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? And it's because Jesus bled and died for our sins, past, present, and future, means he will never turn his face from us. Not now, not until eternity. You will always have a Father in heaven. He will always claim you to be his child, his son, his daughter. You know, we once lived our lives here, apart from Christ, uh, with a soundtrack. And the soundtrack was that of that song, The Hard Knock Life, from that musical, Annie. Do you remember that one? It's the hard knock life for us. Instead of treated, we get tricked. Instead of kisses, we get kicked. It's the hard knock life for us. But that song is now rewritten, repurposed, a new theme song, for your life. It's the song of your adoption. It's the love that filled the life for us. Instead of tricked, we get treated. Instead of kicked, we get kisses. It's the love filled life. In this work of adoption, God not only objectively changes our status, but he offers himself to us as his father and he calls us his sons. And then Paul continues in verse five and he says this, he predestined us for adoption himself as sons. Now, that word as sons is a bit confusing because why doesn't Paul say he adopted us as children? Why as sons? Because don't women also become children of God, daughters of God? And the reason Paul uses sons here is because in the Roman culture, only sons could legally become heirs. Only sons had the right, the legal right to receive an inheritance. And so Paul is just using that language. And so God takes us in as sons, whether you're male or female, he takes us in as sons so that what is his can be rightfully and legally yours, so that God could shower his inheritance upon you. And this is why in Romans 8, 16 and 17, Paul writes, uh, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And it's a wonderful blessing of adoption that when we are legally brought into God's family, he pours out an inheritance. He reserves an inheritance for us. But it's not the inheritance that I want to focus on today. I don't want to focus on the future inheritance we have as a result of adoption. I want us to focus on the present affections we have. Well, what do I mean by that? When we are adopted, united to the eternal Son of God, we become sons in the Son, meaning this, that the love that God the Father had for his very own Son is the love that God the Father has for you. It's not a second-tier kind of affection. It's not a recycled affection. It's not leftover affections. But the very love that is received by and deserved by Jesus Christ himself is the love that you have. This is a lofty thought to dwell on. But consider it with me. When you look at the end of verse six, here's what it says. With which he has blessed us in the beloved. That all of this blessing comes to us in the beloved. Now, who is the beloved? 
And this is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is God's beloved. In Mark 1, uh, chapter, uh, Mark 1, verse 11, it's this great scene of Jesus' baptism. The heavens are opened up, right? And, and the Father speaks and the Spirit comes and we read, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so Jesus is identified and declared to be the beloved son of God, the object of God's greatest and grandest affections. And yet when we become sons in the son, what we share in our adoption, in our sonship to the beloved son, means this, we become the object of God's love. We too become God's beloved. That the father doesn't love his son in one way and then turn around to you and say, well, I kind of also love you. But the same love that has eternally fallen on the son now falls on us because of our union with Jesus. We are united, we are sons in the Son, and therefore the Father loves us. Look at John 17, verse 23. Jesus, he, he's praying the high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father. He's praying about his disciples, and he prays a, a radical prayer. I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me, and check this out, and you love them even as you loved me. Father, that you loved them, even as you loved me, the eternal son of God. And imagine for a second that you get a sneak peek into heaven. You're transported into heaven and Jesus has just returned after the ascension, right? So Jesus came to earth. He was uh, born in human flesh. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He rose the perfect resurrection. So he's ascended. He marches into heaven. He is the risen triumphant uh, son of God. He takes his seat at the right hand of God, the father. And in that moment, when the father sees his son, you know, what kind of love does the father have for the son? What kind of love is rushing out, surging out of the father's heart and aimed toward his son? And to believe that as surely as God loves the son, God loves us in the same way. That the love that came out of the father's heart and fell on the son is the same love that comes out of the father's heart and falls on you. Whether you feel worthy or not. Whether you've lived according to some righteous standard or not. Surely as Jesus is God's beloved, so now we are God's beloved. And so Paul, just a few chapters later in Ephesians 5, 1, will write, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, united to the beloved of God, we are now God's beloved, which means no depth of your sin or magnitude of your failure can rewrite God's adoption. You are not more loved by God at your best, and you are not less loved by God at your worst. And all of this happens, verse 5 and 6 tell us, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Because if you think, well, that sounds a little unbelievable. That sounds a little too good to be true. And God's saying, well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That I would love you so incredibly that you would feel like this cannot be true. And God's saying, yeah, it wouldn't be true apart from my grace. I've adopted you into my family, not because you can take credit for anything, but to the praise of my glorious grace, to show the riches and the glory of this undeserved, unmerited favor that I've poured out upon you.
if you believe your adoption in Christ, dear friends, um, there are so many things that uh, are now true of your life. And I just want to tease out two of us, two, two of these for you. The first is this. Your prayers become more intimate. Being adopted into God's family means that now you get to call God Father. Now, yeah, you should use all the reverence and respect for God and call him God and Lord and Most High and King of the Universe and Alpha and Omega and Beginning and End and Lion and the Lamb and all of these great uh, designations. But at the very core, the most primary way that you now can address God in prayer is this. Father. Now, it may, for some of you, feel uh, difficult or uncomfortable to call God that term. Some of us, because of bad experiences with our fathers, maybe some of us growing up without a father. But you must know this, that when God adopts you into his family and he puts the spirit in you that cries out, Abba, Father, he's actually saying, I want you to call me Father. It brings me pleasure to hear you pray to me as Father. You know, even the demons can call him God. But the demons could never call him Father. That right is only for those adopted and brought into his family. And when we cry out, Abba, Father, we're accessing the intimacy that God has paid a great price for us to have. That he has brought us near through the blood of Jesus so that we can cry out, Father. And then our prayers aren't formal speeches and presentations before God, but intimate cries and prayers and pleas. I don't have to get myself into a worthy spiritual condition to pray. I don't need to get the words just right in order for God to hear me. I don't need to be nervous about having others hear me pray. Why? Because I I don't gain the ear of God through my eloquent speech, nor do I gain the favor of God through persuasive words. I have God's ear. I have God's favor because Christ has earned me that right. And so be mindful. Just encourage me. Be mindful of the way you pray. And if you're not sure of how you pray, ask others who have heard you pray. Do you hear me call God Father? Make much use of this benefit that God has given to you so we can grow in intimacy in the way we pray. The second thing is this. Your prayer requests become more vulnerable. Not only do your prayers become intimate, but your prayer requests, what you share with others, become more vulnerable. Because when you pray to God as Father, it forces you to remember not only that He is Father, but you're His child. You know, to the world, you may be somebody. To the world, you may be a CEO. You may be a director, a boss, a manager. You may be somebody who others look to for leadership. In your family, you may be a parent, you may be the oldest child, you may be the eldest sibling. And so others look to you for dependence. In the church, you may be an officer, a CG leader, a seminary student, uh, an intern, a discipler, a mentor, somebody who others look to for guidance. But when you stand before God and you pray, you stand before him as a child, a needy, dependent child. And when we realize that about ourselves, even in what we're sharing and asking others to pray for, we don't need uh, to try to and always put our best foot forward. Always Photoshop our prayer requests so that it doesn't make us seem actually that needy or that lost or that wounded. That we can be open and honest 
move past superficial and surface level concerns. Because you hear somebody else crying out father and you're crying out father. You, say, you call him father too? It means you're just as needy and just as dependent on God as I am. Here are the things I'm struggling with. Here's the way I've been wounded. Here is what I've been wrestling through. And so we open up ourselves and we show the raw, unedited versions of our hearts. We share the deepest burdens and concerns we have. And we pray them together because as Jesus taught us to pray, we then pray, our Father in heaven. You and I, we're all in the same boat. And we come together and we pray to God. Now, dear friends, I mean, there's so many applications and implications of our adoption. But one challenge that I have for us, especially as some of you are in community groups you're meeting this week, some of you met last week and you're on this rotation, as, as we're praying, as we're praying for one another, let's make use of this adoption. This great privilege, this crown jewel of the gospel that we have now because of Christ. Now, of course, it'll take the rest of our lives and even into eternity to begin to explore the depth and the reality of what it means for God to be our Father. But we can begin now. So we pray and we share in intimacy with God and vulnerability with one another. Our Father in heaven, would you listen to us? Would you pray with me now?